Hi. Good Labor Day, eh? Right? Oh, sorry, Labor Day, huh? Um, sorry, the American version. I've got to get used to that. Um, I'm going to tell you this weird, stupid story before I do it. This has nothing to do with this sermon at all, but I just want to tell you what kind of craziness has happened to me this morning. First of all, I got locked in the, in the, the other building here over in Elgin. Thank you for joining us, all you guys in the other campuses. When I was locked in the other building the other, in, uh, in Elgin, I had no idea how to get out of it. So finally, they came and rescued me, did the sound check here, and then a bunch of people came up, and I was talking to them. I wore this shirt, but I didn't have anything underneath it, and my wife's not in town. She would have told me not to do that, because apparently this shirt likes to show all the sweat, so I'm dripping wet down here, and it gets all wet. TM, I don't you too much information for that, but anyway, it's just soaking wet, and I go in the back, and I'm like, it's not dry, it won't dry off. So I'm trying on all these other shirts. I have a Georgia Bulldogs baseball shirt I was going to preach in. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is not going to go well. Anyway, my son, we ended up finding a blow dryer. And so now it's good. But uh, this is it's just so, I mean, everything's weird. Everything was weird here. It's every week that I preach. And I'm a bit of an idiot most of the time. So anyway, anyway that has nothing to do with anything. And... Uh, it is great to have you guys all join us from wherever it is you are in Chicagoland. We love you. We're thankful that you're here with us. Um, we want to jump into studying God's Word today. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. The last two weeks, I've had an opportunity to just kind of choose what passages of Scripture that I want to preach because I want to preach them. Um, last week, we talked about Job 42, which is one of my favorite pet texts, and then this one as well, both of them give a picture of God that is quite a bit greater than usually the way that you and I think about him. Um, I would not be here today if it were not for uh, my mentor, Ken Hutcherson, who passed away a number of years ago, and Hutch uh, was a former football player, as I've said before, and uh, he invited me to come to his house on a Monday night with a bunch of other snot-nosed high school students and we would sit around and we'd talk about God, about theology, about doctrine, about the different books of the Bible, all sorts of great things. Uh, the first book that we ever studied, and this is when I was like sophomore in high school, the first book we ever studied, I was kind of newish into the faith. The first book was called A.W. Tozer's um, Knowledge of the Holy. If you have never read A.W. Tozer, he's, he's fantastic, and that book in particular talks about the character of God. At the time, I felt like I had dove into the deep end with Hutch, but there is a line at the beginning of that book that has had huge import for me. And so I wanted to read this one, two sentences to you, because I think Tozier is exactly right. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at any given time may say or do, but what he or she in their deepest heart conceives God to be like. Almost every problem that you and I have is theological. The way you picture God, how you understand his character, will drive necessarily your thinking about your life. If you believe that God is sovereign, that should have an influence on your worry. 
If you believe that there's hope in heaven, it should have an influence on the way that you deal with suffering in the present time. Most of the scriptures are trying to convince you of who you are in Christ, what God is like, so that your life will be transformed in the present time. Comes into our minds when we think about God as the most important thing about us, which of course raises a question, what is it that comes into our minds when we think about God, especially when it comes to our particular culture this day and age. When I lived in New Zealand, we, there was a Saturday morning market in the town that I lived in, uh, kind, of a, kind of a holiday or vacation spot was where I lived, and so you could go into the Saturday Nelson Market, and you could walk around. We did kind of the man-on-the-street interview sometimes for our church, you know, take a video camera around and a, and a, and a microphone and interview people, and one of the questions that we asked on one particular Sunday or sorry, one particular Saturday, is um, what do you think God is like? And so we started asking people. It was really interesting because New Zealand is a very secular place. And I expected to hear a lot of people like saying, there is no God. We got none of that. Some people said, what's God like? He's mean, kind of a cosmic killjoy. But almost everybody else said, God, yeah, he's, he's pretty nice. He's like a nice old grandfather type guy. Which surprised us. But if you do any research or study into the, into the background or the current state of our culture right now, one of the things that you'll find out is that uh, in studies, especially one that's recently been done by a guy named Christian Smith, he's a sociologist, he's done a study called the National Study of Youth and Religion, and one of the things that he's found is that it doesn't matter what background you're, if you're Buddhist, or if you're a Sikh, or if you're a Christian, or what version of Christian you are, almost everybody, when they're asked these questions, especially young people, have the same answer regarding what those religions teach about God. God, according to that study is there, right? He exists. Uh, he wants us to be good and nice. He wants us to feel good about ourselves. In fact, that's one of his big goals. He doesn't get involved too much unless we need, he's needed to solve a problem. And ultimately, good people go to heaven. There's a great uh, quote, in fact, from, oops, from Christian Smith. He says, the moralistic, therapeutic deist, this is his language to describe the God that everyone believes in. The moralistic, therapeutic, deist God is not demanding. He actually can't be, since his job is, here it is, to solve our problems and make us feel good. In short, God is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. As one 14-year-old white Catholic boy from Pennsylvania, us, Pennsylvania, responded to our inquiry about why religion matters, he said, well, because God made us and if you ask him for something, I believe he gives it to you. Yeah, he hasn't let me down yet. He's a spirit that grants you anything you want, but not anything bad. Right? God, the cosmic genie. So these guys have done study all throughout North America and said, this is basically, if you go out in the streets, this is what people believe when you talk to them. 
And this viewpoint actually has seeped very much into the church. Most people believe God is a really nice guy. He's sort of like a grandpa. Grandpa, um, in fact, C.S. Lewis, a number of years ago, said that himself. He says, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile old man who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves. And whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said, at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. See that God rocking on his porch with his lemonade. Get off my lawn! That's like his one rule. Is that what he's like? If you go to the Bible and you want to find out what God is like, you are going to find something very, very different. Those who've seen him would never describe him this way. You say, well, how would they describe him? Isaiah chapter 6. What do we learn about God from Isaiah's report when he saw God? So I've got two steps in this. There's two things that, he, he, that Isaiah's going to learn. The first is that God's holiness creates despair. And second, God's mercy creates dedication. God's holiness creates despair. God's mercy creates dedication. This is a great passage of scripture. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. Okay, here we go. Um, here we go. Oop, where is it? Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Uh, let, let's stop right, right there for a minute. King Uzziah was a really good king. If you read in the Old Testament, one of the things you find out is that there are some really great kings of Israel and there's some really stinkers. Right? Ahab was a stinker. Uzziah was a good king. He ruled for 52 years. He came to the throne when he was 16, and he really loved the Lord. And he honored the Lord with all of his, his actions. The, the nation, because he was such a good king, prospered under him. And so after 52 years, Uzziah dies. And the people in Israel are like, well, the reason everything was going really well is because Uzziah was alive and he was honoring God. And now we don't even know who our king's gonna, what he's going to be like. Because in the past, we've had kings who are real stinkers. So we kind of have to fend for ourselves. And so people were running off to, uh, after idols. They were worshiping other gods in Israel. And so Isaiah, presumably troubled by all this, he shows up at the temple and he has this vision. He probably goes to the temple to pray. And there he is inside the temple, and the Lord shows up, and he shows him, peels back the layer of the physical, and shows him the immaterial heavenly kingdom. And this is what he sees. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and, and, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Do you guys remember? Um, see, when I was a kid, Princess Diana got married. It was like, for us, like two in the morning. We had Welsh friends who invited us over to their house. And I was like, what are we doing? My mom's like, oh, you have to come. My mom was Canadian, so you have to come. It's so important. No, it's not. So we showed up. I remember sitting there half asleep. But the thing I remember about Princess Diana, and for those of you who are younger, Princess Meghan, is that when she's getting married, there is an enormous train on her dress. So long that it goes all the way down the center aisle of the church. It's huge. She's got, 10, she's got like 15 attendants holding on to it. 
Now, you, ladies, you did not have that at your wedding. Do you know why? Because you're not that important. I mean, you're not princess important. I know that day you pretended to be a princess, but you're not a princess. But Diana was, Meghan Markle is, and that's right. The, the, the longer the train, the more important the person wearing it. So the train of God's robe fills the temple. The temple was the largest building in the entire world at that time. So that's a long train, right? It goes in the doors and down and it goes out. Like, that's a big train. And he's, he's high and lifted up. You know, in the Olympics, you know, you get the podium, first, second, third. They always put the first one on the top. That's the idea. God, God is better, more important. Now, above him stood the, the seraphim. This is a, a, line, a word for, uh, it means burning ones. It's in, they're angels. These angels are really interesting. E- each had six wings. With, with two, they covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, they flew. Why are they covering their face? Well, you don't look upon God's face without... Preparation, you, like he's too holy to look upon his face. One called out to another, and they, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, he's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, the way that you emphasize something is you repeat it, right? So when Jesus comes along and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you and I think, well, that was a weird way to talk. Oh, really? You're, really, you're, you're a dum-dum if you think that. Right? You're not just dumb. You're a dumb dumb. Like we, that's the way we talk. We double, we, we say it twice. I double dog dare you. Right? It's not just a dog dare, it's a double dog dare. If you fall into a pit in Hebrew and, and uh, you want to emphasize that it's a really deep pit, you go, well, that's a pit pit. So a holy, holy, holy God. He's not just a holy, holy God. He's a holy, holy, holy God. Like whatever image you have of holiness, he's even above that. And these angels, they, 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 these seraphim, they, they chant this. I don't know, chant, sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the song, guys. That's it. Two lines. Well, I'm, I can't wait to get to heaven when we won't repeat the song so much. <laughs> right? <laughs> And the reason they repeat it all the time is this ne- it's never enough, guys. It's never enough. You could say God is holy. You could say he's holy, holy. You could say he's holy, holy. You could repeat it over and over and over again. And nothing that you say about him is enough. He's high and lifted up. Train is filling the temple. It's magnificent, this picture. But it's also freaky. Dangerous. The foundations of the thresholds. This is like the pillars shook at the voice of him who called. The voice of the angels is shaking the foundation. There's an earthquake going on in the middle of this room with Isaiah. And And the house was filled with smoke. In the Old Testament, smoke is usually a sign of the presence of the Lord and stuff. But one of the things that is in the historical background is, if you lived in those days, there are two things that you don't want to be near. Number one, you don't want to be near an earthquake because buildings were not made for them. 
If you don't believe me, look at other parts of the world when earthquakes, earthquakes happen today, places that aren't as developed as places like the United States, and you will find that when an earthquake comes, it flattens everything. When earthquakes came there, it flattened everything. So if the earth is shaking, you're doomed. Second, the thing you didn't want was fire. Because there weren't fire hydrants anywhere. The fire department didn't exist. Most places were built as, as condensed cities with walls to protect them, with a, basically apartments. The city of Rome had these large apartment buildings, and they would just fall down several times. Anytime fire showed up, it would fall down. People in Chicago know the devastating effect of a fire in an ancient city. So here's Isaiah, and the two things that you don't want are happening at the same time in the midst of this magnificent scene. There's an earthquake and smoke from a fire. So it's this weird mixture of magnificent beauty and devastating fear. My son, uh, Micah, he's my second born. Uh, we took him to a, to a zoo in New Zealand when we lived there. And, uh, you know, little guys, he was like two. We had a great day. The thing I remember most about the day, though, is that at the end of the day, we went to the lion den. And the lions, you know, usually they hide under rocks or whatever, but there they were. They were, they were laying by this fence. Okay, so in New Zealand, they decided, you know what, we don't need to build a big fence. So they built a fence, like a, a barbed wire fence, and then you had to stay back a little bit because there's a... You know, it's because the lions apparently will jump over and eat you. So he stood back for a little bit, and we were looking at these lions, and there were like seven or eight of them. They were magnificent. Have you ever been really close to a lion? They're beautiful, amazing creatures. There's a big lion with a big mane, and then there's a whole bunch of mama lions, right? And so Mike, I didn't see him, but Micah had snuck under the, because he's two, he snuck under the little the barrier. And he had walked up to kind of to the fence. And he was walking back and forth in front of the fence. <laughs> you know, kitty. And this, the lions saw him, and they all, almost in unison, all these female lions got up, and they walked right with him. Just looking at him the whole time. And in my, in my heart, there was this mixture of feelings. On the one hand, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> right? That's mag Look at these magnificent creatures. And yet at the same time, they're going to eat this kid. Right? So I dove over and I grab him and pull him back. But I think that that mixture of feelings is what Isaiah's experience in this, in this moment. It's the same thing. You stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you see this magnificent thing, and yet you also know that if I take one step forward, I'm going to fall to my death. That mixture. Right, You stand before the sea and you think, this is amazing. And then the storm comes up and you think, I don't want to be out there at all. He's magnificent. But he's dangerous. And here's how Isaiah responds to this. I, I said, woe is me. For I'm, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, for his conclusion is woe is me. 
Woe is me. Uh, we don't use that language. Like, you know, it's the kind of thing, oh, woe is me. That's the, in, the, in these days, the, when you say woe is me, it's basically I'm a dead man. I'm dead. Kill me now. Like he is so morally corrupt before this holy God, he, he decides, I, I can't go on anymore. Here's what's really interesting about this line, though, this woe is me. Okay, if you, we're in Isaiah 6. If you go back to chapter 5 of Isaiah, here's what you hear repeated in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is frustrated with the people of Israel because they are not living like people who should live who serve God. So here's what he says. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those, there it is, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room. You know, they just keep adding more to their, to their portfolio and they just keep getting more and more and they don't share any. They're big hoarders. Woe to you. Which, which means you're as good as dead. You're going to get it. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, right, guitar and drum, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. They're just hedonists, just living for themselves, for the party. Woe to you, you are so in trouble Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Like everywhere they go, they're pulling along their sin, right? So they're, they're, they're attached to it. You, when you see them coming, you're like, here they come. They're going to bring all their sin and iniquity with them. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How dare you say that what God says is immoral and what you say which contradicts it is moral? Woe to you! Do you have any idea what's going to happen to you? You're going to stand before a holy God. You sinners. This is what he's saying. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. You can feel him here, right? How dare all of you sinners! Don't you know who God is? Woe to you! You're so in trouble! But then he sees God. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isn't this fascinating? Here's this guy. He's decrying everything he sees in everybody else until he sees the Lord, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, dear. I'm dead. Isaiah rightly points his finger at the wickedness of those who turn their backs on God in a myriad of ways. But when he sees God, he says, oh, you're not the problem. We are. R.C. Sproul, in the holiness of God, he said, if ever there was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah. He was a whole man, a together type of guy. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. 
He was respected as a paragon of virtue, but then he caught one sudden glimpse of God, of a holy God, and in that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed. Morally and spiritually annihilated, he was undone. He came apart. See, righteous Isaiah blasted wicked Israel until he realized there's no such thing as righteous Isaiah. It occurs to me I'm speaking to a bunch of righteous Christians who like to blast the wicked people outside the church. I wonder if we saw the Lord, if we'd feel differently. I'm not suggesting that the things that the Christian church decries in the culture at large is, are bad. I'm not saying that at all. They are bad. Isaiah's right when he calls down woes on all those people. He's, he's, a, he's a prophet. He's absolutely right. They're going to get it. But if Isaiah thinks of himself as being somehow separated from the get-itness, he's totally, totally misguided. You're great when you compare yourself to somebody else who's not great, but when you compare yourself to the holy God, which is who you should be comparing yourself, I don't know if the difference between you and your unholy friend is all that distinct. Um, I have two boys, and so as a result, uh, it was always fun to watch them play basketball. The older one would always like to dominate the younger one. You know, to prove his manliness. So my little boy would go up and he'd try to shoot the ball. And my big, his big brother, pow, take that. You know, and then he'd try it again. I'm going to get you. And he tries a hook shot. And his brother, wham. Oh, yeah, I'm here all day. You know, he's right in his face. Compared to his little two-year, you know, four-year-old brother, he's amazing. He's Shaquille O'Neal. But as a father, you're sitting there looking like, oh, it's time for a lesson. And you get in there to the, why don't you play me now? And so you get in there with your son, boo, you know, what's up? What's up, son? How's it feel? You're right? That's right? It's hard being a middle child because you're always, your older brother is always beating on you, and then you do the same thing to your younger, younger sibling, and your parents are like, see what it's like? You're great. We're great when we compare ourselves to one another, but when we compare ourselves to the Holy God, we're just, we're just not. We're just not. One of, my, one of my least favorite things that Christian people do is, uh, I preach for a long time, and one of the things I get a lot is, do you know what? That sermon, I really, really like that sermon. I wish my friend was here to hear it. And I'm always like, yeah, but you were there to hear it, right? Like, were you, you were there? See, you can feel like you're dealing with the Word of God by saying, oh, I hear that and I agree, and I'm going to find all these people I need to tell it about, Right? Actually, if you want to deal with the word of God, it's exposing you. Like it's exposing you. It's saying to you, you are not what you think you are. And if you stood before a holy God, which is where you stand, compared to him, nothing. Morally bankrupt. Deserving of woe. There's no righteous group. We're all guilty before an immeasurably holy God. That's what I mean when I say holiness leads to despair. 
But the beauty of this story is it doesn't end there. God's mercy, secondly, will lead to dedication. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah. Verse 6. I can't find it. Where am I? I'm still trying to get used to my, my thing here. There it is, 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And, and he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. R.C. Sproul again. He says, Isaiah was groveling on the floor. Every nerve fiber in his body was trembling. He was looking for a place to hide, praying that somehow the earth would cover over him or the roof of the temple would fall upon him. Anything to get him out from underneath the holy gaze of God. But there was nowhere to hide. He was He was naked and alone before God. This was pure moral anguish, the kind that rips out the heart of a man and tears his soul to pieces. Pieces, guilt, 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 relentless guilt, screaming from every pore. You can see him, you can see him, he's cowering. (laughs) I hide, I've got to hide, there's nowhere to hide. And then God, who, who should kill him, has every right to kill him for being so immoral, comes and he takes a coal from the altar, he touches the guy's lips and he says, now you're atoned for Here's the big thing that you need to see this. God doesn't look at Isaiah and saying, say, oh my goodness, if I had you on my team, we would take over the world. Right? Look at you. You're amazing. You're an amazing guy. There's nothing in Isaiah that draws his attention. I had a friend a number of years ago who was telling me about this guy he was trying to share Christ with. And he said, oh, man, if we could just, if God could just get him into the kingdom, I know that there would be massive things that would happen. And I was like, I don't know. Right? I, I don't think anyone, I don't think God looks at anyone like that. I don't think he thinks, wow, you're president? <laughs> I need you. I don't, I don't think he thinks that at all. In fact, the scriptures say he chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. There's, there's nothing about you or me that draws God's attention to us. In fact, when he looks upon us in our sinful state, he says about us, eh, you should be condemned. For all eternity. That's, that's the righteous thing that should happen right here. But God is scandalously generous then. Right? It, it, it's, it's kind of a crazy scene. There's a story in the Old Testament that a lot of people don't know about. It's 2 Samuel chapter 9. There's this, this guy named Mephibosheth. So here's the scene. Jonathan and David, really good buddies. And then Jonathan and his dad Saul die in battle. And the way it usually works is if you're going to be the next king, you have to find all of the, the, the physical descendants of that family and you kill them off. That's the way it works. Because they're a threat to your throne. And so this little guy, Mephibosheth, he's only, what, one year old or something like that? And while they're running him out of the building, running away from what they think David is going to do, is they drop him, and he, he, hurts, he breaks his leg. And they take him off to a place called Lodabar. Doesn't it sound like, you know, doesn't that sound like Kentucky? Lodabar. It's out there in the middle of nowhere, right? Sorry. Is Kentucky okay? Idaho. Everyone always says that about Idaho, but I've been to Idaho, and it's amazing. But Canada. It's like Canada. It's in the middle of nowhere. So, but he's out there hiding, he, he grows up, and one day David is in, the, in, in, the, in, his, um, 
And his kingdom says, you know what, uh, I, I want to find this guy, Mephibosheth, so I can show him kindness for the sake of his father, my friend Jonathan. So he sends out his emissaries, I mean, we're talking a military escort, to go and find the guy. They find him way off in Lodabar, right? They cross the border, and they're in northern Ontario, and they get all the way up there. And there he is. You can imagine this guy's feeling. He deserves death. That's the way it works. And he's sitting in his little hut, you know, waiting for this day. And now it comes. He hears the knock at the door. And there's, there's David's, you know, his emissaries. And they're saying to his, his keeper, you need to send him out now. It's been years. And so there's, there's uh, Mephibosheth. And he's limping out because of his hurt leg. And he sits in this cart. And he's got to ride all the way back. And he's thinking to himself, I'm sure, every step of the way, I'm dead. In fact, when he stands before David, finally, he goes on his hands and knees and he grovels and he says, what do you want with a dead dog like me? Expecting judgment, expecting death, David says, stand up. I want to I give you all the kingdoms and all the lands of your, your father and grandfather. In fact, here's what I want to do with you. I want you to join my family, I want you to live in my house, and I want you to eat with my fa- I want you to be my son, basically. This is a great scene at the end of the story. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Just crazy, Jerusalem's the center of all the important things. He's not in Lodabar anymore. He's in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. But he was lame in both his feet. That's, sc- that's scandalous. You do realize that you are him though, right? That you and I are him. We're, we're the ones who've been cast off to the faraway country to, to die. We deserve ultimate death. God has no interest or shouldn't have any interest to come and to find us. And if he did come and find us, it would be for judgment. But he hasn't done that. Instead, he's come and gathered us up, brought us back, and he's lavished on us grace, we sit at his table. He knows your name. And for all eternity, this God will lavish his grace and joy upon you, and you will sit there in 30,000 years and think, I shouldn't be here. I should have died. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. Grace, 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 scandalous grace. Now, here's the thing. When you realize the level of the grace that you've experienced, it transforms your response to the God who showed it to you. And that's what happens to Isaiah. I heard the voice of the one saying, whom shall I send? So sin's been atoned for. I've heard the voice of the one saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, really important here, here I am, send me. It's not about the United States military going into Afghanistan. It's just for everyone's clear. They've been quoting that a lot these days. Here's what it's about. Do you guys remember when Isaiah, at the very beginning of this whole thing, was standing there seeing this scene, and what he was hearing was the angels singing, chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
Those are the words that you say when you're in the presence of the holy God. Those are the things that come out of your mouth and across your lips to a holy God. I'm sure that he wants to join into the worship because that's what you do when you're in front of the holy God. But he realizes if I, if I say these words, they're going to have to go across my lips. And when they come across my lips, they're going to be immediately immoral because I'm a man of unclean lips. You ever thought about why he's mentioning his lips? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. None of us can worship God like this, but I, wa I want to. And then God, he comes and he atones for him, and he touches what? His lips. So he's free to worship now, guys. He can worship God, and what you expect to come out of his mouth is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But what comes out of his mouth? I said, here I am. Send me. In other words, Isaiah's act of worship is a sacrificial commitment to go. The way that he worships God, it would be certainly appropriate to say, holy, 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 but the way that he worships God is to say, here I am, send me. Now, here's the really sad part about this. <laughs> he doesn't really know what he's being called to do just yet. So here's what it says. Here's, here's his job. All right, so here's your mission, Isaiah. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. <laughs> Sorry. Can you imagine going to a mission fest, what, Urbana or one of these massive mission fests? I'm going to go serve the Lord. And you go to the different... You go to the different booths all around, and you finally come to the one, and there's this one, you know, serve the Lord, in, and you pick the place, right? Canada. So you go up there, and you say, I'm going to go and reach those folks, and then, and then they say, oh, that's fantastic. You want to sign up here? Yes. Okay, so here's the mission. You're going to go up there. Everyone's going to hate you, and they're probably going to kill you and eventually saw you in half. Is that okay? Mike, you in? Seriously, if you're standing there, and you're hearing this, you're like, ah, uh, no wonder. Isaiah says, um... Now, how long? How long, O oh Lord? And so, the Lord's response. He said, until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. I'm going to devastate it, Isaiah, through your words. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. But the holy seed is, is the stump. I'm going to restore it eventually through this holy seed. Guess who that is? The Lord Jesus. But here's what I want you to see. That this guy, because he's experienced the grace of God so fundamentally in his life, he now responds with an act of grand worship. And that worship is sacrificial going. Here's the way it works. If you believe that God is a little bit better than you, and that you are just a little bit right here, morally speaking, this is the amount of gap that will influence your worship. And I mean worship in the singing, and I mean worship in the going, and I mean worship in the giving. If you have that much gap, your worship will be that big. 
But if you view God the way he actually is, high and lifted up, train of the road, filling the temple, standing before him, you are immeasurably dirty and deserving of eternal damnation, and yet he's come and lavished his grace upon you. You were down here in Lodabar, and he's way up here, eternally holy and worthy. If that's the gap, and he forgives you of that gap, your worship should be that big. So I can tell an awful lot about the way that you think about God by the way you worship him and what kinds of sacrifices you're willing to make. Uh, I want to prove this to you in the last couple of minutes. Romans 12, 1 and 2, after Tal talks in the beginning of Romans about, the, about the, the grace of God and how magnificent it is, he says, finally, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I've talked to you about the mercies of God and what you were owed, and you were in low to bar, and now you're, uh, uh, you know, you're getting the, the blessings of his grace over and over. I, I urge you. I appeal to you then to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Throw your body up there on the altar. Surrender everything to him. Well, why would I do that? Because the grace is so big. Um, Zacchaeus. You guys know the story of Zacchaeus? Little tax collector. Nobody likes him. He's a chief tax collector, so they stink. He's got small man syndrome, right? I'm a big man. And he finally climbs up this tree, right? And because he wants to see this Jesus. Uh, in those days, really important men in skirts didn't climb trees for obvious reasons. And, but he's doing it, right? He's so interested in seeing Jesus. He brings shame upon his family by getting up there in the tree. And looks, Jesus stops on the road and is like, hey, I'm going to have lunch with you today. Which is a sign in that culture of you're going to be my friend. Nobody else wants to be friends with Zacchaeus. He's like the dirty of the dirty, Talk about unvaccinated. He, he's the worst. So he goes to, Jesus goes to his house in Zacchaeus. When he's standing at the house, he says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I take, I take half my goods. This guy's one of the richest men around, guys. I take half my goods and I give them to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What makes you give half of your stuff away? Well, the fact that Jesus, who should condemn you, welcomes you. There's a story, and I'll finish with this. Jesus is coming in, and he has this meal. This guy named Simon at the end of the table. He's a Pharisee, good religious man. He's at the end of the table, and he's sitting there, and a bunch of men around the table... Women didn't come into these meetings. This is a very holy meeting. They're reclining at the table. This woman breaks in. She's got her hair going everywhere. Just a sign that she's, you know, kind of a loose lady. She's got hair going everywhere. She's crying tears. She falls down at the feet of Jesus and she starts to wash his dirty feet with her tears and wipe them dry with her hair. She takes this bottle of perfume, which is probably what she uses for her work. It probably, her life savings have gone into this. Perfume was not cheap, and she starts pouring it on his feet, and you can smell the perfume throughout the room. This guy at the end of the table, Simon, is sitting there going, man, if this guy knew what kind of woman this was, 
No prophet would sit there and let a prostitute stand, sit there and, and wipe his feet. She, he would get out of here. That's what he'd say. Holy people don't mix with those kinds of people. Jesus, knowing what he's thinking, looks up at him, and this is what he said. Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And, and he answered, say it, teacher. Well, it's a story I want to tell you. It was a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned, him, owed 500 denarii. It's about two years' income. And the other owed him 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, Simon, here's my question. Which, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the, the larger debt. And he said, look, you've judged rightly. And then he turns toward the woman and he said to Simon, and he said to Simon he's looking at the woman and he's saying to Simon, do you see this woman? See, I entered your house, you, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears. And she's wiped them with her hair. You, you gave me no kiss, a welcome. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You didn't invite me in. I, you stayed at a distance from me, acting like I was some sort of, I don't know, acquaintance. But from the time I came, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with, with ointment, with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, look, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves Have you been forgiven again? The temptation that you'll have after some message like this is that you'll think, yeah, yeah, I should be a much better Christian. I know, I know. I should totally care more about this stuff. Bad Christian, bad. But here's the thing the solution isn't to muster more passion for Jesus, the solution is to sit and reflect on the grace of of the Jesus who had passion for you. And when that fills you enough, when you just realize the scandalous nature of the grace that he has given you, that you did nothing to get it, you will live forever in his kingdom, lavished upon by his grace and blessings. When that hits you, that will never be taken away from you. It's yours forever because he said so. When that hits you, Here am I. Send me. Do you realize how big the gap is? Our Father, we're thankful that you have showed grace to us. Uh, for Christian people sitting in a church, we get used to words like gospel and grace. Spirit, I pray that you will come and you will apply that to our hearts in a way that we can feel it, Lord, in a way that we can recognize it. So many of us think of ourselves as kind of good people compared to the people around us. We're just really moral type folks. But Father, I pray that you would give us a vision like Isaiah had for your holiness, who you are, so that you could 
show us this grace, to help us feel this grace so that it would influence the way that we respond and live our lives going forward, Father. This church will go nowhere if we don't realize the gap. So Father, make us a a church that knows that gap and responds rightly to it. Oh, you are good. You are good. You have chased us down and made us your own. And for that, we will be eternally thankful. Find our response in the way we live now in Jesus' name.